0: Welcome to Laughter for All. It's the podcast with comedian Nazareth. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Laughter for All podcast with comedian Nazareth. My guest today is Lejah. I don't know what to tell you about him. He is the pillar of apologetics in the Christian, in the kingdom here on earth. Uh, Josh has delivered approximately 27,000, over 27,000 talks. To over 25 to 30 million people in 126 countries, who all have COVID right now. All these 126 countries have COVID. That's what they for listening to me. <laughs> all right, and he has. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm gonna hang up the phone and uh, uh, talk to you on. Uh, can you? You can hear me right now, right?
1: I just lost you.
0: you no, know, you can hear me now. I can hear you. No, oh you're oh you're listening. You can't hear me. Okay, let's see. Uh, and uh, let's see. That's this is this is good. okay. Hello, hello. And uh, okay, so we're gonna do this. Okay, can you? Now hear we're me? back. Yes. Now you can hear me. All right, perfect. So uh, let me continue. 126 countries, including. He authored over 150 books, including More Than a Carpenter. He also authored Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is uh, right here. One of the best books you can get on Christianity. If you're a Christian, you need to study this. You need to have this as your reference because this book will, you know, this is, evidence. This is not like, oh, maybe this is what I believe. No, this is the evidence. This is took a lot of research. We're going to talk about this book, but uh, he is uh, one of the 20... 20- if, if you want, I could introduce myself. Yes, Len Jinn and Mr. Josh McDowell himself, one of the greatest apologists of our time and evangelist. Welcome to the show, Mr. McDowell.
1: Hey, this is like dying and going to heaven being with you, Nazareth. Oh, thank you so much. we so glad for- they
0: didn't name you Bethlehem uh that's my sister <laughs> no my sister is buffalo uh but uh thank you you're in texas right now right no you're in southern California. i'm in dana
1: point california where i
0: live well i was there two days ago in San Clemente. but uh, you you were you're right you and Dottie lived in texas and then came back because the grandkids are here in southern california we've been here about 12 14 years uh, Now, uh, one question, I I know you traveled probably, you did 27,000 shows, so that means you've been uh, around the globe so many times. How is Dottie, your wife of almost 50 years, years, how did she handle that?
1: Well, I wish she were here, because she would tell you she handled it very well. Um, We've gone through divorce proceedings four times. I, I think the key, people that have problems when they travel, will have worse problems if they don't travel, I really do. Mm. Um, our marriage is based on an excellent relationship, I am so humbled to be married to Dottie. Uh, she has changed my life. And the thing is with Dottie, she believes in me more than I believe in myself. And she promotes me far more than I promote myself. And uh, she thinks I'm the greatest speaker in the world. And and I tell her she has the spiritual gift of the grasp of the obvious. That's a great spiritual gift to have. uh, She, up until we had three children, she traveled with me almost all the time. And now with the kids, four kids, and they're all grown up. She doesn't travel as much because we got ten grandkids and seven of them live around us.
0: Oh, but, that's uh, a blessing.
1: But when I'm home, I'm home. And uh, we just never have quit working on our relationship and our marriage. And so how uh, do you
0: work on it at this? Uh, you know, after forty-eight years, what's what kind of things you work on differently than you did earlier? No, oh.
1: communications, communicating. One of my problems is I'm the big picture guy. Don't bore me with details. Just mm. give me the big picture and I'll fill in the details. As a result, Dottie is the type of person that needs details. An example, I'd come home from a trip and I'll say some friends of ours, so-and-so had a baby, boy or girl. I don't know. What'd they name it? I don't know. How much did it weigh? I don't know. It was a human baby. That's all I needed to know. So now when right. I come home, so-and-so had a baby. What did they name it? Jennifer. How much did it weigh? 42 pounds. No, no, not that much. But uh, uh, when was she born? I get all the details now. And I found out that the shortcoming in our communication was me. Because mm. I wasn't in details. And I've learned to do that over the years. And Dottie won't let me get by with it if I don't. And I think that's true of a lot of men. They don't give details.
0: Yeah. Have you, have you been on the road after a thousand shows and said, I'm tired of this. I'm really tired. I'm done. Di- I'm done. And have you ever had that feeling before? Nope.
1: No, never. Last year I traveled 330 days year before 310. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, uh, Dottie went with me a number of times. This year, I thought, five months ago, I thought, you know, I'm gonna stay home. I'm gonna pray for something like the virus <laughs> to come along and, and quarantine me. And so uh, I've gone out a number of times being quarantined and done two one-week family conferences and others, but really being careful, because I'd rather be six feet apart than six feet
0: under. <laughs> That's right. Now, uh, you were born in Michigan. I want to be Uh,
1: close to my mother.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Born in Michigan. Your, you know, your upbringing was not Christian. You were an atheist. And you actually were intelligent enough to want to fight Christianity and prove it wrong. I wasn't an atheist.
1: I wasn't that dumb. I was an ornery agnostic. Mm. You have a regular agnostic, agnostic and you have an ornery one. I was an ornery agnostic.
0: What's the difference?
1: Well, an ordinary agnostic says, I don't know. Maybe you know. Let's talk about it. An ordinary agnostic says, I don't know. You don't know. So shut up. (laughs) And when
0: did that change for you?
1: Probably about 35 years ago,
0: 40 Mm. years ago. Was it was it an evangelist? Was it someone that preached to you? Or did you actually no. by yourself? I, uh, I met these students at Kellogg
1: College in Battle Creek. This was actually 50 some years ago. And they were so different. Most people are different because they're weird. These people are different because they seem to have a genuine love for each other. Uh-huh. And they seem to love people outside their group the same way. So I went and made friends with them, and I said, what changed your lives? Why are you so different? The other students, the leaders, the professors. And this young lady, oh, she was cute. I used to think all Christians were ugly. But <laughs> she looked back at me with a little smile and just said two words. I never thought I would ever hear about solution in the university. She just looked back at me with a little smile, which was irritating, and said, Jesus Christ. And I said, oh, for God's sakes, don't give me that crap. And I lit into him verbally. She didn't back off. She said, And I said, I'm sick and tired of the church, the Bible, uh, God, Christianity, and Christians. She said, we never said any of that. We said the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So I apologized to him. But a part of my apology, I added a disclaimer. I said, I want you to know something. I don't want anything to do with Christians, Christianity, the Bible, or Jesus Christ. And that's when they challenged me to intellectually, now get that, to use my Mm -hmm. mind. I used to think Christians had two brains. One was lost and the other was out looking for it. (laughs) I figured if a Christian had a brain it'd die in isolation or loneliness. And so I accepted their challenge, left college for a while, traveled throughout the United States, England, Germany, France, Switzerland, and the Middle East. I made a lot of money my first two years in university. Doing what? Doing what? I started a painting, nobody had a job. You couldn't get a job anywhere. My father always said, if you can't find one, create one. So I created a superior painting company, hired college students at about $8 an hour back then. And I got paid 15 to 20 an hour for each one of them and painted <laughs> houses. And you know, these cigarette commercials and tobacco painted on the ends of barns. They used to, well, I used yeah. to do that. Oh. And uh, <laughs> boy, there's good money in painting the ends of barns. And so I, i quite a bit of money. And, uh, as I traveled, I realized
0: I was ignorant
1: mm. and, uh, I ended up December 19, 1959, 839, at night, trusting Christ as my savior and Lord, didn't understand it all, but mm. intellectually I knew it was true. Two things. I knew the Bible was historically accurate and reliable. And I truly believe Jesus must be the Messiah, the Son of God. And um, I came to Christ and I wrote the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, which took 13 years documenting why I believe it's true. And now I got 151 books <laughs> built on top of that one book. Um, but so I, most people think I came to Christ through the intellectual route. I didn't. I came through it the emotional, relational route. You say, what do you mean? people would say to me, because they knew my background, they'd say, you know, there's a God in heaven. There's a father in heaven who loves you. Well, they thought that brought me joy. It didn't. That brought pain. Mm -hmm. I grew up believing fathers hurt you. My dad hurt me. And so my greatest barrier was seeing God as a loving father. I just couldn't. And it brought up a lot of animosity and resentment and everything. And finally, I started to see him as a heavenly father and I came to Christ. So it was kind of a relationally emotional rejection of Christianity, not intellectual.
0: Now, how long after that did you write more than a carpenter?
1: Oh, about eight years after that. I was in Chicago. And uh, so many people would ask me questions, professors, businessmen, students. Well, how can you believe in Jesus? How can you believe in the Bible? So I was in Chicago at Larry Shepherd's place, a single guy. And uh, Dottie was with me. And I said, I'm going back to Larry's condo. And I'm not going to bed, not leaving until I write a book. So I sat down at three tables in uh, kind of a U-shape with a large TV on in front of me. And 42 hours later, I finished the book. And never 42 read, hours? Yeah. I never read the manuscript. Sent it off to Tyndale. And I was doing a conference at Point Loma College, a big high school, national high school conference for the Nazarene yeah, Church. I and I got the thing when I left to go to the conference. I got the manuscript in the mail. And I couldn't open it. Because I knew they were going to reject it because they had Virginia Hearn. Was the editor the toughest editor in America? And she was the uh, editor of his magazine for InterVarsity. But she uh-huh. was tough, she was like nails. And so I knew it was going to be rejected. So all weekend, I was so scared. I got home, finally said, This is ridiculous. And so I prayed and prayed, and I opened it up. And across the top of the first page, Virginia Hearn wrote, This is one of the best manuscripts we've ever received. And wow. I started crying. <laughs> I literally started crying for the unbelief that I had in lack of faith that God could use me as a writer. And, uh, so that started my writing career. Uh, and that was during the process of doing evidence that demands a verdict, you know, and I just funny. wrote it. I just wrote the book that if you and I were sitting here in this Mexican restaurant where I am and you'd say, let's have a tor- tortoise together. Uh, what I would share with you in about, 45 minutes to an hour is called more than a carpenter book. If you
0: ask me, why do you believe? You know, it's, it's amazing because this book, uh, two things. Number one, 11 years ago, God put it in my heart to start a ministry called voice of refugees, me and an Iraqi lady in, because there's a a flood of refugees coming to Southern California, Anaheim mostly. So we started the ministry and God just blessed it. uh, To the point today, like, every week we we feed over a thousand people uh, you know we put 40 pounds of food and uh, oh that's really that I,
1: makes my day
0: i remember from the day one we started every time a family comes in like we know about a family coming from iraq or syria or afghanistan we send one of our drivers to pick them up from the airport and we take him to their apartment and then we give them free furniture if, with the free furniture is more than a carpenter book in arabic and the Jesus uh, film. Every family that comes in. Uh, a month ago, we had this, um, you know, we've been delivering 40 pounds of food. I did that yesterday as well. And we put your book in Arabic in in, in that. So until oh, this that day- warms my heart, buddy. And I was told, and this is true, during the Iraqi war, when the, mil- the American military got into Iraq, some of the stuff, the Christian military were used, were, Using your book to spread around in Arabic more than a carpenter, so. It's, it's Do you real... remember in
1: Iraq when they let a whole bunch of prisoners out? About two hundred, they released them, and somebody called me right away and said, "Zoom in! They were half of them were holding up a book and waving it, and it was more than a carpenter." <laughs> That's and amazing, somebody called me book. and I zoomed in. And I said, "Oh my God! Look at that!" And, and it and took you 40, right? <laughs> 45 Who bought minutes. that book? <laughs> who, who distributed that book in the prisons? And I'm hoping mm-hmm. someday when I share this story, somebody will know who it is and let me know. Because I'd like to thank them and take them out to dinner.
0: And get your royalties in, in denarius.
1: Well, I don't get any royalties <laughs> anyway.
0: Oh, but you They're know- all given away. You know, being Middle Eastern myself, I know your love for the Middle East because I remember I went to, a, you know, there was a, a Middle Eastern festival and, they, and we, we rented a booth for uh, Voice of Refugees to witness to people. And guess who was in the booth next there? Mr. Josh McDowell. And those are Iraqi people coming. They know who you are and they're asking you for your signature. The lines were 40 and 50 yes! people yes! long. Yes.
1: And you know what I did? What? Every night. I would sign 50 books, Mohammed, and 50 books, Ahmed. <laughs> Why? At least 50 Muslims would come up. And i will say, what's your name, Mohammed? And i said, oh, here. Well, would you sign it? Oh, it's signed! <laughs> and they thought I was so brilliant. Oh, what's your name, Ahmed? Oh, here. Take from this pile and <laughs> give it to
0: them. So every preferred... night i
1: go to this cafe uh-huh. and sign books for about two hours. Ahmed oh, and Mohammed. Now, have somebody you somebody said, to why would Middle you do that? And so I sat there and I yelled out, Mohammed! And all 40 people stopped, turned around and looked. And then the person <laughs> said to me, I see why you signed a Muhammad.
0: <laughs> now, have you been to the Middle East? Have you spoken in like Iraq or Syria or any Egypt? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yep. Have you ever been in, you know, challenged or troubled or attacked or any of that?
1: I've had a lot of threats in my life, uh, but I've yet to be attacked. Mm. Um, I was just about killed in Argentina. Uh, How? But they stopped him before they dropped a the cement block on me from three stories up.
0: Are you serious? Yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah. You'd really had to have a hard head to live through that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but most, most people, if you're warm and friendly, if they don't like you, they'll be polite. Mm-hmm. I've always prayed, still hasn't happened, that wherever I live, I would like a Muslim to be my neighbor on the right and a black brother to be a neighbor on the left. Somebody says, why? Because I love to walk out of my porch or deck and lean over and chat with a black fellow. Get to know them. See how they think and everything. And the same way with a Muslim. And see them come to Christ. But um, two black young men just moved into our neighborhood. Three, four houses down. And I said oh, I said to them, oh, bummer. Why couldn't you have rented the house next to
0: me? It's a big <laughs> Oh, that's funny. That's funny. No, so uh, we're going to
1: have them. Uh, we have COVID-19 meals. We have them in our garage. Oh. And we separate everybody. And then I sit out. I sit out in the sun and bake. Uh, so I'm at least six feet away or more.
0: That's funny. That's, so if you come I mean, down,
1: I'll sit in the garage and put you out in the sun.
0: Oh, I don't mind it. I was born, you know, I lived in Kuwait most of my life. I mean, in my young life. So that's awesome. Now, uh, you, you were the first who started the big apologetics and, you know, going around the world and really defending the faith. Then came Ravi Zacharias Zacharias too. And he was, he had a different kind of direction, but it was the same. Like you, you were the pillar and then Ravi. Who do you think now is the new ones that coming up, that uh, carrying the torch? Who are you handing the torch to?
1: Well, I think my son, Sean, is one of the tops in the world. If you haven't heard Sean McDowell speak, S-E-A-N, you need to.
0: I heard him, yeah.
1: The kid is brilliant. He's knowledgeable, and he can communicate. To get all three of those in one person, I had to have my wife involved (laughs) (laughs) to do that. But Frank Turek, uh, there's a lot of younger guys coming along. Uh, The body of Christ is in good shape. I wasn't the first one. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. But as far as back, I can remember there's a fellow professor at Fuller Seminary called Wilbur Smith. And he wrote a book called, Huh, Now That I Believe or something like that. And it was a little small, a lot smaller book, similar to Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he could communicate. He was very down to earth. And I think he laid the foundation for me to come along. And then I remember I was up in the Northeast and I said to my wife, there's this Indian guy. Everywhere I go up here, he shows up. (laughs) And I said, he's brilliant. She said, how do you know? Because I said, to me, the answer is not the most brilliant thing. It's asking the right questions. And I said, he's asking the right questions. And you know who it was, Robbie Zacharias. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, he was just a brash kid. He would interrupt me talking to somebody else to ask a question, which I enjoyed very much. Yeah. And then (gasps) – and then I think there was uh, Norm Geisler. Yeah. I think we all are indebted to Norm Geisler. Um, he set the stage with a lot of debates and everything and uh, some of his books. Yeah. And then I came along right after those two.
0: Now, my question, and which is now uh, so needed today, in today's length, what is truth, Josh? You're the one who wrote the the evidence and the demand of verdict, the new evidence you talk about truth. What is truth?
1: Truth is that which has fidelity to the original. You say, what? When I first read that, I think it was in the uh, collegiate dictionary by Webster someone. And I thought I'm in trouble when I needed a definition of the definition. <laughs> truth is that which has fidelity to the original. Fidelity means the same as equal to. And so what's the original? Let's say I have a bottle of water and I say, I have a container. I have a liter of water and Nazareth, you say, no, you don't. I said, I do too. You said, you do, you do not. Now is my statement correct and yours false or is your statement correct and mine false? Now truth is that which has fidelity or the same as equal to the original or reality. So you and I would take our wives and we go to Paris, France to the far out suburb where there's an international bureau of weights and measures all the original metric measurements so we would take the original metric measurement for a liter and we would compare it with my container of water if it was fidelity if it was the same as equal to that then my statement was true because there was fidelity to the original and yours was false but knowing you you probably drank a little bit of that (laughs) and therefore There'd be a little less liquid in my bottle of water. So your statement would be correct. Why? Because my statement did not coincide with what is, with reality or the original. And your statement was true then, because your statement coincided with the original. That's what truth is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when it comes to truth, you have to ask yourself, where does the evidence point? What is is the original? Does the statement mean? Like if I say it's snowing outside, is that statement true or false? If you went outside and there was a white substance to find the snow falling from the sky, then my statement was true. But if you went outside and it was about 82 degrees out and no white substance, my statement was false. Why? It did not coincide with what is or reality. Yeah.
0: So, what in today's day, what is uh, like, you're an evangelist as well. You're not only an apologist, you've been evangelist. You led so many people to Christ. I'm also a,
1: hus- a husband, a father, an of uncle. Of course, of grandfather, course. Yeah, and
0: many things. And, a fr- and my friend. And I've been to Brick and Ridge. Oh, and that's in your, right. And I'm your uh, friend. I stayed in your that cabin. Gets me and into all the bars. I went into your boat, and I uh, went on, uh, and also I did several events. So I love working with you. But uh, the question is, right now, as an evangelist, it's. I'd have you like, more.
1: I'd have you more often, but you're so expensive. Whoa!
0: Oh, I'm free for you. You know that anytime. I've I done love
1: things to. you haven't done. The other day, I turned my car into a tree.
0: A tree? <laughs> okay. okay, Josh. Now you. Let's say you're. You want to share Jesus today with a Generation Z, and I know on your website on josh.org there's all these researches that your team did that talks about the difference in the generation z and the and the millennial stuff if you witnessing today to a generation gen z person what is uh what how would you approach that
1: very simple i would approach it the same way i do with every type of person in the world whether a muslim a hindu a millennial Gen Z or whatever, I would start with my personal story or testimony. I would first ask them, as I do all over the world, uh, tell me about your spiritual journey. Everybody likes to tell about their journey. And I listen to them without answering back. Mm. And then almost always, they'll say to me, well, what's your journey? And then I'm off and running. Or I'll say, well, could I have some time to share with you what my journey has been? Nobody has ever said no. Your strongest witness is your personal testimony. Mm. It really is. doesn't matter what country, what culture, or what the person is you're talking to. From an atheist, to a Gnostic, to a Hindu, to a Buddhist, to a Taoist, whatever. Your most positive witness is your personal testimony.
0: Do you think churches right now are weaker than before 10 years ago are they stronger is the gospel reaching more now than or less what what is your take on that on the church on the church the state of the church i think it's stronger Mm. um
1: i think it's quite a bit stronger and many churches have found out how to use um social media the internet the web to uh Communicate. Uh, I go to a church just almost around the corner from where I live. It used to be a Calvary Chapel and then it went independent. It's Mm -hmm. called Harbor Point uh, Church. And I just love the church. The pastors are right on and they're speaking, they're teaching and all. They're creative. Uh, I mean, every year with with a middle school, they provide backpacks for every kid and it's amazing how many of those kids end up coming to church hearing the gospel and all and that's kind of thrilled so I think the church is stronger for example in our ministry every 60 seconds not on the internet totally apart from the internet 150 people every 60 seconds downloads our resources yeah that's multi-millions a year And that's not even the internet, it's millions more by the internet. We have four pieces of technology we use. Uh And right now we have 647,000 pieces in 139 countries. And this Uh has never happened with anyone before. I don't think because we got technology. I mean, one little piece of technology on it has 14 of my books in two Muslim languages as most of my material sexuality in two Muslim languages, as the Bible, the Jesus film and the undaunted movie of my life in two Muslim languages, and most of my material and sexuality. And flying from Cairo to London, my chief executive officer had charged it up, turned it on and just dropped it in to the pouch in the back, the back of the seat in front of him. In one airplane flight from Cairo to London, In less than four hours, in that plane, 75 passengers linked on to our technology and downloaded 1,127 resources in one flight.
0: Inside the plane, they were able to download, link to it.
1: Yep. It's not Wi-Fi and it's not a radio signal. I I just don't understand it all, but I know how it works uh, in getting the job done. And... Everyone on the plane, it'll pop up their phone, my Wi-Fi free. You know, in the United States, that's no big deal. You get outside of the United States, in every country, it's a big deal. Yeah. And thousands. To it. We got another piece that we just got. It's a little larger, um, about this big, and contains more material. But in the Middle East and everything, a lot of people have um, – walls around their house and everything in many countries and they are quite a ways apart the houses you can take this put it out on your wall turn it on and for about a half mile everybody will pick it up in their houses and everything my wi-fi free and it's just amazing how many connect on it and download and what is nice they can't trace it to us but we, oh. can track every, we can track every one of them the moment they li- they link onto it.
0: So you mean we they get can be, get free Wi-Fi for themselves and then based on that, they can see all the resources that you can download? Oh, it's incredible. Um, okay. Where can, can we get it? it? What? Where can people uh, buy this and use it? Well, we had it designed in China. Oh, so it's going to
1: I hope... Within a year, a year and a half, I can have a conference in Dallas and invite all the mission groups, large churches, everything to come and present our technology and where they can buy it and use it. The problem is most churches won't be willing to put in the money for it. Why? The key is not the technology. The key is having the right material and programming it right. And that's what costs money, Mm. is programming it right. But, I mean, it's probably the cheapest ever in history for um, evangelizing someone. And you're doing it in their method of communication. Their smartphone, their iPad, their their laptop. We've had, with more than a carpenter book, there's about 200 million copies in circulation. 200 million. It's probably the number one read book in history apart from the yes. Bible.
0: Yes, and it is.
1: The majority of it is digital. It's digital. People downloading it. Uh, and the thing is, when people download, an average of eight people read it because they forward it to others, to others, to others, to others. And we put a copyright on there and said, do not distribute so
0: people would do it. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun. And uh, speaking of your books, uh, this book, The New Evidence of Faith, uh, That's obsolete. Huh. That book is obsolete. Really? I called
1: my son. Yes, I called my son. And I said, Sean, I feel guilty. I'm sitting here in my office with incredible evidence that nobody knows about. on the Bible and Jesus and resurrection. So I said, why don't you join with me? And let's do a complete, total revision of The New Evidence Man's a It's now called, back to its original name, evidence that demands a verdict. It's a total, complete revision. Uh, It's probably 70% new because there's so much new evidence. I explain it this way. There's a tsunami of new evidence, and now everyone can have access to it through evidence that demands a verdict.
0: Now, how long long it took you? How long it took you to write the original one? And how many people did you... Uh, were helping you researching and doing it. How long did it take you?
1: Well, the original took 13 years. One summer I had 11 uh, research students from universities that got credit for it, spent June, July, and the first half of August, and I'd point out research I need in this area, go here, do this. And so every day, 10, 11 people were out there six days a week, uh, gathering the information, and I would synthesize it, evaluate it, eliminate or reuse it, whatever. And that's why there's over 2,000 documentations, I think, in evidence that demands a verdict.
0: That's amazing. I know you're scheduled to be at our church, Crossroad Church here in Corona. I live in Corona. and Yeah, uh, I am. Yes, and I don't know if they're still, what do you think of how churches are reacting to the COVID and how, what's your thought on that as a wise person?
1: Well, a lot of churches are really doing well with it. John MacArthur just opened up his church. (laughs) But with incredible safety factors, really incredible. And same way with our church. Uh, And they started something during the COVID thing on Saturday night outdoors and mm. Dottie, I just love it. We go in my little, I'm looking at it right now, my little mini Cooper convertible. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll show it to you. See that? Oh, <laughs> I love it. Oh, shove it to the floor and it loves to go. And uh, so we go there, we put the top down, we take a burrito from the Mexican restaurant here and everything. Uh-huh. And we bring a chicken soup or something like that, that Dottie makes. And we have dinner there. At church, it's incredible what they do. And a lot of people show up for it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the church is a little slow to act usually, but they always act. And, you know, that's probably good. If the church was fast to acclimatize to something, we'd probably get in a lot of error, and make a lot of mistakes. The church is like a big barge that moves slowly. But when it moves, it takes a lot with it. That's so I'm, I'm thankful. But there's problems with the church because we have people in it.
0: <laughs> that's true. That's that's true. That's uh, that's a problem. So, uh, you know, I'm an evangelist. I'm a comedian, but I use comedy as a way to... You do it well, too. To re- well, thank you so much. You're the best. And... Uh, what do you think today? I know you you answered the question with like you share your testimony, but then what do you deal with deal with the young crowd that don't believe in any of that? Like I don't believe this, I don't believe that. How, and uh, you know how do well, you? Well, when
1: they're th- when they're like that, you have to bring yourself down about the fifth grade level
0: uh-huh.
1: and speak slowly with one syllable words so they can understand. Um, well, if you know me. I, I launch into apologetics. And one of the first things I ask them, do you believe there's such a thing as truth? Yes. How do you define it? And most, of them, most people cannot define truth. Maybe one out of 30 will have wow. I an intelligent answer to that. And uh, then I'll say to them, okay, that's truth to you. What criteria will you accept? What type of evidence, whatever, that will show that it's true? And then I almost always can use their evidence, their formula, and lead them to Christ with it, whether it's showing Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, whatever. Um, and so, but I always make sure I get back to the gospel, as Christ died on the cross for his sins, was buried, raised again the third day, and he wants to enter our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. As my wife says, because Christ is raising the dead, he lives. And because he lives, he has a if it capacity to enter a person's life and change them from the inside out. And um, I think he used what a, what a good salesman uses. Mm. Um, I always try to present something they really want. Then I show them why they can't have it, why they don't have it. Then I show them how they can have it and then make it personal. Mm. And that's four points of a good salesperson. It's also four points of a good witness for Christ. Can you repeat those four again? Yeah. Number one, Hmm. promise them something desirable. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Second, show them why they can't experience it. Because man is sinful and separated from God and therefore cannot experience this love and plan for their life. Then third, show them how they can experience Jesus Christ is the only way, da-da-da-da-da. And then fourth, make it personal. You need to personally trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. Those four points. Makes you a good evangelist or makes you a good salesman?
0: That's wonderful. Are you still with Campus Crusade? I know you were very no. instrumental. No. I'm with Crew. Okay. Oh, crew, <laughs> Steve Douglas. I talk, yeah, he's my friend on LinkedIn. <laughs> you know why? You know why?
1: So many dumb, idiotic people criticize Crusade so much. Totally ignorant. When we changed our name from Campus Crusade for Christ to Crew, there were mm-hmm. two key factors. There one, we had to do it. I couldn't even put on my website that I'm a staff member with Campus Crusade for Christ, because the word crusade has totally changed from what it meant in the 50s. Mm. And it would turn Muslims off. And I couldn't witness them. And 80% of my work is with Muslims. Right. And so it became an incredible barrier that a lot of people didn't have the brains to understand that. Second, they would say, oh, Campus Crusade is... Oh, man, pastors, businessmen. And if any of them listening right now, you ought to apologize. They would say, oh, Campus Crusaders, they jeopardized the cause of Christ. They've compromised. They've taken Jesus out of the ministry and everything. How dumb can you be? (laughs) The main reason why we didn't have Christ in it, for a year and a half, we tested every combination of words for a name of a ministry that was not used somewhere in the world. And even with a computer, we couldn't do it. And all we needed to do was have a name. That some little ministry in Iowa, China, or Korea, whatever, has the same name that could sue you. Right. And they could take hundreds of thousands of dollars and have you stop after all the money you spent. So we did everything we could to um, come up with a name with Christ did it. We couldn't. And we didn't dare to jump in to use a name that was out there. Second, I like the word crew, which comes from crusade. I like the word crew. And this is what a lot of people don't realize. I cannot believe businessmen don't even realize this. Whenever you come up with a name or you rename something, you don't want it to be specific. You want it to be a ob- not, uh, what do you call it, not obnoxious. General.
0: you know.
1: Kind of general with no meaning. Why? If you really want to do good at renaming, you want to take an innocuous name and then add meaning to it. So we took crew. At the time, it meant nothing except for a crew cut. Uh, or crew, rowing a crew boat. Uh, and, of course, everybody jokes about that. But little by little, we added the name that crew stands for a global organization of creating followers of Christ that every person in the world would know a follower of Christ. And that's mm-hmm. what we're becoming known for. We have added value to the name. And I like that. And a lot of people just didn't have the brains to see it.
0: You know, it's funny because uh, last year they have something, uh, Steve Douglas and crew had uh, something that they want to reach, you know, five people, each person was in May, that they'll reach five people for Christ. So we all gathered at LAX, uh, Hyatt Regency and Steve Douglas was there and uh, different people from different large ministries from the Assembly of God, the Southern Baptist, and my ministry laughter for all because we're evangelistic ministry. I was invited too, so we were in small room of thirty people that were doing this huge worldwide uh, outreach, which they did in May. But uh, yeah, crew was part of it. But uh, have you had anything funny happen to you in those twenty seven thousand two hundred shows? Anything you remember? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: was at Arrowhead Springs, which at that time was International Headquarters Campus Crusade. And down the hill was this large dormitory with a very large meeting room. And I was speaking there and it was on, on the uh, intercom all through the hotel, and Bill Bright's room, everything, office. And I was on uh, risers, but nobody locked the risers down. Ouch. And I did this comic routine. On about your first date. And uh, I was known for it for years. It was so funny to do. And I would always have two chairs. And then how a girl would come and sit down, and i sit, and how I would try to hold her hand or what it took to get my arm around her or anything like that. And But the problem is, one chair was on one set of risers, and the other chair was on the other set of risers. So I'm oh, standing geez. there, and I said, I finally got up, and I threw my arm. And as I did that, the riser split, and I went headfirst down between them. Oh. And nobody knew people were running down from headquarters. What happened? What happened? What happened? Because <laughs> everybody started screaming and everything. And my feet were literally sticking up in the air, <laughs> and my head straight on the floor. Um, and that was one of the better things. <laughs> Probably some of the most embarrassing is when you get up with your pants unzipped. Ouch. <laughs>
0: that's, yeah, that's some.
1: Uh, I used to practice, what do you do? You don't make a big deal out of it. Everybody knows how you zip up your pants. And so I was in Hawaii. And this kid way in the back, I'm about 15 minutes into a talk with parents, and I thought, boy, is this a dead audience? Nobody was laughing or anything. (laughs) And this kid comes up to the platform, reaches up with a little note. And I picked it up, and I looked at it and said, oh, no. So I just said, your pants are unzipped. And the whole crowd went... Oh, nobody knew what to say to you.
0: That's so what the puppet that far
1: stage or anything. So I just turned around, Well <laughs> the zipper got caught, and I couldn't get oh. up I was sitting there going like this. <laughs> and the place is just coming undone. And I said to him, "Relax, folks. It's all part of the act."
0: Oh, good. <laughs> well, that
1: night, I got back to my hotel, and there was a very well-known wealthy businessman. This was in, um, I think, Korea, South Korea. Uh And it was an American businessman standing there. And he said, um, hi, my name is so-and-so. Of course, as soon as he said it, I knew who he was. And he said, I came by to tell you. I've seen a lot of people handle the unzip thing. But that was the most professional, quality way I've ever (laughs) seen anyone ever handle it. And he said, I'm coming back tomorrow night and bringing some others with me just because the way you handled the zipper thing. So you I had got, to do it again. Praise God. I'm going to have to go around now and leave it unzipped and zip it up just to get more people <laughs> to the meetings. <laughs> but those hilarious. are always embarrassing. They're, they're embarrassing times, I have to admit, on there. Uh, and then, oh gosh, I couldn't, I've had so many funny situations. Some of them would start out serious.
0: that's funny what are you what are you working on right now at this moment what are you working on
1: i'm working on how to say nazareth i gotta go
0: yes that's why i'm gonna ask you i'm closing the show in a minute uh talk to our audience right now right now what what i'm doing
1: is i'm creating uh, portfolios for what pastors and parents are going to face the moment the covid19 virus is over for example I'm doing these portfolios, about 25, 30 pages, also putting all the material on my website. Uh, Loneliness, depression, mental illness, and pornography. Mm. All these things have been in existence before the virus. Everybody's saying, well, look what the virus is causing loneliness. No, it's not. It's just exasperating it and enhancing it. Can I guarantee you, mark my word, it's already happening, but when the virus is over, every pastor better be prepared. Every parent. I'm trying to help the pastors. Don't use research. About 80% never use research and their preaching shows it. Mm-hmm. That's why they're not as good as the apostle Paul. who boy, did he use research when he went to Athens, he know their philosophers their statues, everything. And he know how to address their worldview. But, uh, they better be ready to address loneliness. In the last five weeks, the loneliness um, chart has gone up 250%. They're going to have to address depression. They're going to have to address pornography. Viewing on the number one, number two website in the world, the viewing of pornography in the last seven weeks has gone up 7%. Wow. And you already got millions watching it. And what it is, when you have a lockdown all over the world, I mean, I've been on with, with Tibet, with um, all these weird countries. That's not a weird country, but all over the world, inner Mongolia, outer Mongolia, everything, every single country is locked down. It's amazing. And, and what it does with the fear The stress, the lack of the unknown Mm -hmm. is not causing these things. It's multiplying them. It's intensifying them. And when we come out of here, it breaks my heart to how many more hundreds of thousands of men and women are going to be not watching addicted to pornography.
0: Mm. It'll probably
1: be a million new believers will be addicted over and above the millions of are addicted now. Fifty-some percent of all your evangelical pastors are addicted. It'll probably jump up to 70%. Of pastors. Of evangelical pastors. Oh, yes. Why do you think pastors don't address it? As James Dobson and Chuck Swindoll said, one, fear of exposure. Second, shame. Third, ignorance. Mm. Is why pastors don't address it. But I'm trying to you can go to my website, josh.org forward slash porn and get incredible material. I've done all the research for you. Or josh.org forward slash loneliness is incredible. Or forward slash depression or forward slash mental illness. Incredible material there. But That's most amazing. pastors won't use it because they don't do their homework.
0: That's amazing. You have always been a resource for 50 years to pastors, to leaders, to all of us. So thank you so much for taking the time. If I were at a Mexican restaurant and I had to do a podcast for an hour, I couldn't, I'd be eating and <laughs> eating again and eating again. Well,
1: I had a great, big, great torta before <laughs> I called you.
0: Well, yeah. send my love to Dottie and to uh, Sean and his wife and his kids and the rest of your Boys and grandkids, you are an amazing man. You're a legend. And I know two, three hundred years from now, you will still be impacting people. If Jesus God created goes. me. And then he said, you know, I can do better than he created you. Right. No, he didn't. No, no. Hey, I, gotta <laughs> but go, I would love, I'd love to work with you anytime. Call me. Hey, if, you get down me.
1: To, if you get down to Dana Point and maybe you lost your money, you don't have anything to eat. No place to stay like Jesus. Call me. And I'll pray for you. I'll call you in an hour. (laughs) God bless. I love you. Thank you so much, Josh.